Please listen carefully. You are listening to the reincarnated version of the Global Voices podcast. We are calling it the week that was at Global Voices. Hi, I'm Sahar. I live right outside of San Francisco. And I'm Lauren. I live in Bilbao, Spain. Lauren and I oversee the Global Voices newsroom where we keep things running smoothly. Well, most of the time. <laughs> so Lauren, maybe we need to explain the wonderful world of Global Voices a little bit more. Sure, good point. We are a borderless, largely volunteer community of more than 1,400 writers, translators, editors, journalists, analysts, activists, researchers, online media experts, in general, just passionate people from around the world who want to tell stories that aren't being told or being told poorly or even misleadingly in mainstream media. We've been building these bridges of understanding, as we sometimes call it, through our reporting since 2005. We're entirely virtual. There's no marble building with Global Voices headquarters stamped on it anywhere. In the Global Voices newsroom, which covers 167 countries across time zones and 35 languages, all kinds of stories and work habits. How do we manage? Well, with a lot of coffee, tea, and maybe a little cosmic look. We do have the same birthday after all. This week, we'll take you to Mexico, China, Tajikistan, Macedonia, and Russia. But first up, let's meet our fascinating person of the week, Arne Austin Rothen, and the story brought to us by GVR Juan Tadeo. Arne, a government employee, is city manager in a Mexico City neighborhood that is home to several luxury residential areas. Arne broadcasts law breaking as he sees it happen through Periscope, a mobile app that streams live video. He first made headlines in November last year with his Periscope as he filmed a woman throwing trash on the street. Afterwards, she intimidated him, boasting that she was a public servant. It turned out she was, and she got her day in court. And this February, the government employee turned vigilante Periscoper live-streamed the bodyguard of the president's chief of staff committing a parking violation. Some Mexicans are happy Arne is taking on high-road powerful people, but some think it's a violation of the right to privacy and the right to the presumption of innocence. As a lawyer and TV host put it, Arne's approach damages the honor and the image of the offenders by exposing them publicly. But do we want government officials to be able to impose sanctions at their own women fancy? This lawyer says, this logic is based on authoritarian power. Speaking of authoritarian power, that brings us to our censorship of the week, which our Northeast Asia editor, Oiwan Lam, alerted us to. A document listing in exhaustive detail what shouldn't be shown on TV has been circulating on Chinese social media. It bans, among other things, showing gay and lesbian relationships, crime scenes, young people smoking, young people drinking, violence, witchcraft, stories that rewrite China's history, the list goes on and on. But China doesn't exactly, isn't exactly known for its respect to freedom of expression, so what's the big deal? Well, the document was put out by two groups affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party, not the government. 
In fact, the government already has its own list of 11 principles for the TV industry. But now, authorities are saying, scratch that, never mind, follow these new guidelines. Chinese aren't happy about this. The old guidelines left a lot more room for creativity. If you were to follow these new guidelines to the letter, TV would become a really boring place full of shiny, happy people and nothing else. This feels like more clampdown in line of what we've been seeing happening across the board the last few years in China. You're right. In fact, the groups that put out these new guidelines said they were inspired by a speech that Chinese President Xi gave in 2014, calling on artists to serve the people and conform to communist thinking. That speech was criticized for feeling like a throwback to the days of Chairman Mao, whose rule was characterized by really violent ideological struggle. Not exactly something to look back on with nostalgia. Did I hear you say struggle? You did. In our struggle of the week, we head over to Central Asia, where on March 8th, International Women's Day, the country Tajikistan was celebrating Mother's Day. Tajikistan is the most remittance-dependent country in the world. And since the country's independence in 1991, the lives of many Tajik women have been marked by years of separation from their husbands and children. While these Tajik women may have been using Facebook to stay in touch with their distant loved ones, they've also been successfully using the platform to make their voices heard. Our author, Abdul Fattah Shafiq, introduced us to some of these amazing women. Fari Saidova is an in-demand model, but she wasn't always. Saidova, who is a widow, stayed at home taking care of her five children until last year when she used Facebook to post photos of herself to catch attention of show business executives in the country. Manzura Makamova has gathered more than 10,000 followers on the I Love Khojan Facebook group, which promotes tourism and investment in the country's second biggest city. Manzika Petova runs groups on Facebook where thousands of Tajiks go to keep updated on latest technological and market innovations. Bezinoso Vahidova isn't interested in self-censorship, which isn't uncommon in Tajikistan. She uses Facebook to fearlessly tackle tough issues such as human rights violations, corruptions, and she criticizes the government. This despite all the lawsuits, fines, and threats she regularly receives. And last but not least, Maknuna Yazanova, who promotes her own plus-size fashion line on Facebook. She recently won the Face the Central Asia Fashion Festival, and she will soon be representing the region in the Asia Model Festival in South Korea. I think I need to rethink how I'm using Facebook a little bit across the world. In Macedonia, people are also doing some inspiring work on social media. In our campaign of the week, as reported by our Central and Eastern Europe editor, Philip Stojanovsky and author Goran Rizov, ordinary citizens are using the country's voters registry app to search for phantom voters, and they're posting the evidence they find to social media. And they're finding some pretty questionable stuff. Unknown people being registered at their homes, long dead relatives and acquaintances still in the registry, and in one pretty crazy case, 50 people 50 people were registered as living at one flat of 40 square meters. Some activists in the capital, Skopje, actually staged a protest performance of what that living situation would look like, and it didn't look very comfortable. There's some important context you should know here. Macedonia has been in political crisis. It peaked with revelations that the country's intelligence services, under the ex-Prime Minister Grevsky, had illegally wiretapped a bunch of people, 
including government employees, politicians, journalists, activists, and foreign diplomats. The political opposition released some of these recordings in 2015. In them, high-ranking members of the government seemed to implicate themselves in a variety of misdeeds, like allegedly committing fraud to ensure the ruling party won elections. Authorities have formed a special prosecutor's office to investigate and have codenamed their probe Titanic. It's great that the special prosecutor's office is stepping up, but I can't help but be weirded out by their codename, Titanic. Let's hope their probe doesn't sink. <laughs> well, there's more than one way to tank public trust. It seemed like the election commission was on board with citizens helping out in the cleanup process. They added a new feature to the voters registry app that let people report any irregularities they find, an encouraging sign that was short-lived. Less than a week later, they shut it down. The reason? They couldn't keep up with the number of reports letting in. As you might expect, everyone who'd been working so hard to search the registry feels like this is a bit of a slap in the face. Next up, we are heading to Russia. Where the world is overcome by dark magic, brainwashed Russian orphans, and conniving NATO, where Russian soldiers alone can resist the creeping tide of Western wizards. You guessed it. Russia's paranoid patriotism has gotten a cartoon movie. It's called Children vs. Wizards. The movie isn't out yet, but there's a promotional video available on YouTube. Kevin Rothrock, editor of our Runet Echo project, which interprets the Russian language internet, joins us from New Haven in the U.S. Yeah. Welcome to the week that was at Global Voices, Kevin. Thank you very much. Wizards, orphans, good and evil. Sounds like Harry Potter has entered the Cold War. So this film is uh, its pretty wild. Uh, it, it, it takes place in the not-too-distant future, and then they, it's, it's uh, two young cadets being told a story that took place 15 years ago. And so it's not actually about uh, Russian soldiers so much as Russian military cadets, hence children versus wizards. And uh, basically, you're following the the uh, past events of of one Ivan and Peter, and uh, they are dispatched to Scotland, uh, where they're meant to infiltrate what is called the uh, Higher Academy of Occult Sciences. And uh, it, it, this is basically a, a wizarding school. And uh, the the two cadets are are sent there in order to track down five Russian orphans that were uh, sent there for studying, and uh, uh, for some reason, you know, didn't come back. And instead, they're, they've become known to have started saying bad things about Russia. And so this is this is worth uh, you know a, a mission uh, for for some reason. So they're, they're sending these two military cadets to this school to try to discover what happened to these two uh, these these I'm sorry these five orphans. Um, now uh, at the same time, the wizarding school sends its own star pupil to Moscow, whose mission is essentially to corrupt the school children of Russia and try to recruit them for the wizarding school back in, in Scotland. That Scotland is where this, uh, this uh, uh, Academy of the Occult is. Leonard is the, is the, uh, the bad guy, I guess. In the context of Russia's politics today, he's basically a kind of stand-in for what the Russian opposition is now. They're kind of Western-leaning. They, they don't break the law. They talk a lot about obeying the law. Um, you know, but, but at their essence, they are an enemy. And so um, that's how he's described in this uh, in this trailer, anyway. This very long, I think it's about nine minutes 
this trailer that is sort of interspersed with interviews of the people that help make it possible. There's an Orthodox priest that makes frequent appearances in the tra in the trailer, and then there's a, a man who's described as a, a war veteran, and it's not entirely clear what his relationship is to the picture, but he's there and he's he's explaining you know why it's important for Russian children to watch something with the, these patriotic values. And where did the story come from to begin with? So the, the original source material is actually, this is a bit hard to believe, but it's even sort of uh, wackier than, than the movie. Um, the original story is a book that was uh, first published in 2004, um, called, also called Children vs. Wizards. And this book actually has some very uh, potent anti-Semitic qualities to it. Uh, the, it also has, as one of the lead protagonists, Harry Potter. Uh, he exists in the universe of this, of this story, uh, although He's not so much the Harry Potter most people know and love. Um, he's actually, at the end of the book, revealed to be Hermione's hormone-injecting trans transvestite sister. Um, and in some uh, interpretations, he's also a clone of Merlin, who is essentially the head of this institute. Um, so it, it gets a bit uh, uh, strange. Um, but the, the original book was uh, released under the, uh, under the authorship of a guy named Nikos Zervas, who is described in the book as a, an award-winning Greek author. Um, although, in an interview with some Russian journalists around the time that the book came out, the publisher in Moscow actually admitted that the prize that is attributed to the author is completely made up. And the publisher actually said, you know, this is just a marketing ploy and don't hold it against us, basically. Um, but there's a lot of speculation that this is just a, a pen name for for somebody in Russia that decided they wanted to write this book, um, basically, which is it's basically backlash to uh, Harry Potter, you know, ostensibly, but really it's 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 backlash against just Western values and and uh, what many Russians view as uh, encroachment by the West on Russia's sovereignty. And, and who is responsible for turning this book into this movie? Well, so the the movie itself is being put out by a charity group. Um, and the, it's a charity group that doesn't normally put out movies. They're, according to their, their own website, they, their, their primary purpose is uh, providing material support to orphans, uh, handicapped people, and uh, veterans. Um, and their foundation even says that they, they, they offer this help without regard for nationality, citizenship, or religion. Um, but based on everything they've said when promoting this movie that they did decide to make, they actually have very strong ties with uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, especially. Uh, the, in fact, the, the promotional video, you know, ha it, it features a, a, an interview, a long interview with uh, with a with a Russian Orthodox uh, uh, priest. And and then the other half of this, and it's unclear, you know, how if this is if we're talking about money or if we're talking about again just sort of moral support. Film itself, uh, it carries claims anyway to have been supported by the Ministry of Culture. And, um, and the defense ministry. So the government might have given them support, but what do regular Russians think of this? Oddly enough, the, the trailer itself came out just before New Year, and, and uh, there, were, there, were, there was a good six weeks where nobody seemed to notice it. And then it got picked up by a few social communities that, that look for strange things like this, and it provoked a lot of mockery. And if you look at the, uh, the page on Russia's most popular social network is not Facebook, it's a, a network called Vkontakte, which means in contact, and this film has an official page there. And if you look at the comments on that page, most of them are, are satirical. They're not in support. They're mocking the project. And some of them are quite funny if you, if you don't find them offensive, I suppose. But um, generally, if you look there, you're not going to see a lot of support. That's not to say that there's no support. Some people, there are people you know, defending the film there as well. There, there's also actually a petition on change.org. PR firms in Russia are notorious for 
basically promoting kind of phony change.org petitions um, to, to get something in the news, to feign support for it, that sort of thing. But at any rate, uh, when, when I wrote this story last week, there were more than 10,000 signatures supporting a petition uh, asking the Ministry of Culture to fund a second installment of the of the movie because there are three books and this is only the this materials uh, works with the material from just the first book and so there's there are more adventures in store for children versus witches. <laughs> Why make the the movie now? Why take on Harry Potter now? The most obvious answer is probably that Russia's as they refer to it, the, the information war that Russia is waging against the West or that Russia has been dragged into with the West, depending on who you ask, but uh, that this is, it's just an opportune time to get funding for something like this. It's an opportune time to appeal to people that are energized with this issue of, of, of having to defend Russia from uh, Western influence and so on. So I think the filmmakers or the, the, found, the charity foundation that made this is, is probably betting on the idea that if this, now is the time to strike with something like this. Now the, the the charity itself said basically that uh, this is the, they, they decided they wanted to make a film with patriotic values and they looked around and this was the best thing they could find. Um, and this is certainly one of the most kind of um, outlandish uh, works of fiction that have come out recently on these themes. And so I think it makes sense that they would go with this particular story among all the others out there. Kevin, I think that's all we have. Thanks for joining us on The Week That Was at Global Voices. This is me, Sahar. And Lauren. We are thrilled about bringing the Global Voices podcast back after three years of hibernation. We promise we won't keep you waiting that long for the next episode. Many thanks to all our authors, translators, and editors who helped make this episode possible. In this episode of The Week That Was at Global Voices, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jowser, Mexico by Jimmy Kay, Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zerisky, Rainbow Street by Scott Holmes, and a Russian circus story by the Freak Bandango Orchestra. This is us signing off. Expect to hear our voices again in two weeks. See you then.